Haptex is a new company that manufactures gloves for use within virtual reality. Their most recent promotional video features a smiling woman who slips on a VR headset and Haptex gloves as she's quickly transported into fantastic places. She can reach her palm upward to feel lightly dripping rain, drag her hand across a delicate field of wheat, or even feel the soft fur of a tiny cartoon fox as she pets it. A quick cut takes you to another user positioned in the driver's seat of a virtual car, reaching down to shift into gear, then tugging the wheel as they lean into a sharp turn. Yet another user is at the site of a burning three-story building, manually controlling the smooth metal knobs and dials on the side of a fire truck, finally using a giant heavy wrench to pry open a fire hydrant. These types of abilities have been relegated to science fiction for many decades, but that could all be changing right before our eyes and hands. Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role that intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I'm your host, Lauren Hutchinson. I'm a historian of science and a technology reporter, and I'm fascinated by humankind's ability to innovate and advance the world we live in. In this episode, we'll learn about the emerging world of haptics through the lens of two cutting-edge companies. We'll hear how a college professor is using electricity to enhance touch screens, how a young engineer may be on the verge of a major breakthrough for virtual reality, and finally, we'll take a detailed look at what it means to lay a foundational patent and what that means for strategic-minded companies like Haptex. To begin our look into this relatively new industry, we should start with the word haptics. We'll be using the word haptics to refer to the use of touch as a way to interact with digital and electronic technologies. To help us understand the world of haptics, we spoke with a leading expert. So I'm David Parisi. I'm an associate professor of emerging media at the College of Charleston. Dr. David Parisi has spent many years researching, teaching and writing about haptics. His recent book, Archaeologies of Touch, has set him apart as a go-to expert in the field. However, Dr. Parisi's fascination with how information is transmitted began far before his academic work. I grew up with a sibling who was paraplegic. And uh, one of the things that, that really struck me, you know, watching her deal with her injury was this question of how you get signals from one point of the body to another. Her injury really seemed like an injury that had a lot to do with information transmission. Uh, and that was sort of a, a thing that I'd been kicking around in my head from a pretty young age. In addition to asking thought-provoking questions about haptics, his book outlines many centuries of research and experimentation that have led directly to how inventors are currently understanding and using touch to make some of today's most revolutionary breakthroughs. The book begins with an 18th century priest whose painful experiments use the subject's sense of touch to learn about electricity. Parisi then methodically makes his way to the present day, where haptics is still a source of curiosity and skepticism. On some level, there seems to be sort of a consistent desire to touch and be touched by computers. We seem to want to touch with computers. We seem to want to touch through computers. But on another level, we also need to be convinced that haptic interfaces are a thing that we want. We have to be convinced that touch's technological surrogate counts as a good enough replacement for the real thing. We'll hear more from Dr. Parisi later, but now we turn to our first inventor, who is playing a leading role in proving that haptics are indeed objects of desire. My name is Ed Colgate. I am the Breed University professor uh, in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Northwestern University. I'm also currently on leave from Northwestern and serving as the CEO of Tanvis. Dr. Colgate's new haptics company, Tanvis, 
specializes in bringing real-life tactile sensations to touchscreen devices. If you think about our bodies, uh, we evolved to have these, these five main senses to interface to, to the physical world. Dr. Ed Colgate has thought deeply about our senses and how touch is mostly absent from our digital lives. It's no surprise that as we design products, be they digital or, or be they physical products, um, we pay attention to uh, those same sensory channels. You know, the designers, product designers pay a lot of attention to the way things look. They pay a lot of attention to the way things sound. Think about closing a car door and that nice kathunk that it makes. And they pay tremendous attention to the way things feel. You see that in the choice of materials. You see that in shapes. Um, you see it in surface finishes. So if this is so important in the physical world, why should it be so much less important in the digital world? From my standpoint, it's not. Um, the reason we see less of it is because it is a very challenging problem to control all those same things when you're in the digital world. But if you can do it, of course you want to do it. Um, your ability to, to interface to the world through touch is extremely important, and, uh, and, and I believe that will increasingly be the case in the, in the virtual world, the digital world as well. His company, Tanvis, is focused on a quickly emerging problem. A new challenge has been presented to the haptic community, which is how to present haptic feedback uh, in this new context, uh, after all, if we think about the evolution of the interfaces we use to devices like phones, we used to get that haptics kind of naturally. You used to have the shape of a key. Uh, you used to know uh, if you've pressed that key through the click that it made physically. Teenagers were able to, you know, enter text on their, their keypads really fast and really effectively without even looking. But now we have these touchscreens that don't provide any of that. So we had to rethink this problem. Um, my work over the past decade or a bit more has been focused on what I call surface haptics. And the idea here is to bring in some of the benefits that we had with force feedback devices, so actually applying forces to the finger, but now doing it to the bare fingertips, no grasping involved. And that's really what we do at Tanvis. Tanvis, now successfully having identified their focus, need an actual way to accomplish their aim of making touchscreens a more fulfilling interface. So we couldn't help but ask, how specifically did they do it? The idea is to use an electric field between the surface and your skin to uh, create uh, a, an electrostatic attraction between the skin and the surface. And that pulls your skin into a little bit more intimate contact with the surface, and that increases the friction you feel. Turns out this is an effect that, that's it's completely solid state, like there's no moving parts, and that's pretty cool. It makes it really easy to integrate into products. But it's also one that we can turn on and off almost instantaneously. Um, so that's how we do it, is we use electrostatics to control the amount of normal force perpendicular to the screen that's pulling the skin down against the screen, and then that in turn increases or decreases friction. Their highly controlled use of an electric field allows for users to feel different sensations while using the screen, like texture or temperature. Of course, it's rare to make a major breakthrough without running into what seems like an irreconcilable dilemma. Turns out that's a very challenging proposition for a very fundamental reason. The way that modern touchscreens work is they also use electric fields to figure out where your fingers are. And so we had to find a way to use electric fields both to know where your fingers are on the touchscreen and at the same time to control what the fingers are feeling. For us, the challenge of this technology is in large part that it's very integrative. There are all these uh, different 
sorts of considerations, be they optical or electrical or mechanical or manufacturing, all that come together in, in one uh, very special touch panel. Dr. Colgate and his Tanvas team are well on their way to success. He outlined for us two of the major applications on which they're currently focused. The first is their attempt to solve new safety challenges presented by cars that are increasingly controlled by touchscreens. Tanvas is making it possible to feel controls without needing to watch carefully. Routine things like finding a button on a touchscreen or adjusting a slider can sometimes uh, cause your eyes to be off-road for many seconds at a time, which can be quite dangerous. With haptics, those events go down quite dramatically. Tanvas's second major focus, and their most public accomplishment to date, is a smooth, award-winning collaboration with the advertising agency Mediacom. Mediacom has a, a client, uh, Gillette, and uh, and with uh, Gillette, they sell razors. They sell razors, uh, a lot of them to men. Of course, a lot of guys these days don't shave as much as they used to. And one of the times in life when it's it's perhaps useful to think about the importance of shaving is when a baby is born. Science shows that you know, babies need that skin-to-skin contact. So we created an app with uh, the agency, with Mediacom, that uh, enables uh, enables a father, a young father, uh, to uh, feel a beard on a, a, a virtual guy on the screen, which can actually be an image of himself. Apply shaving cream, feel that, and then shave. And then finally, uh, have the experience uh, that the, the baby would have with both the clean-shaven and the bearded face and see that difference. Um, this, uh, this actually won a uh, Silver Lion at the Conleone Festival earlier this year, which is a pretty, pretty big deal in advertising. So that was a really nice example of kind of the rich multimodal uh, experience. Thanks to successful and creative collaborations with major companies like Ford or Mediacom, Dr. Colgate has a unique take on the importance of intellectual property, in part because his invention is mostly intended for use within other products. Patents are extremely important to to a business like ours. If you think about what we do, we develop an interface technology which is typically going to be incorporated into somebody else's product, be it a car or anything else that might have a a touchscreen involving haptics. So for for us to be in a position to go and sell that technology to to those customers, we need to to have the protection that that patents provide. Uh, So they are extremely important, which is why we've uh, invested a great deal of time and effort and money in in obtaining, obtaining the intellectual property protection both in the U.S. and around the world. It's clear that haptics are already being used in wonderful ways, proven by the work that Tanvis and Dr. Colgate are already doing. But the possibilities for the near future are even more fantastic. Turning back to our professor, Dr. Parisi helps us understand the larger power that haptics will have as it evolves. It's really a a, a magical technology in a lot of ways. Just the same way that television, um, the same way that cinema is a magical technology, the same way that the telephone is a magical technology. Um, We can use haptic interfaces to create new and unprecedented types of touch experience. It's the same way uh, that cinema is used to create special effects. We could create special haptic effects. We could create sensations that have never existed before. Um, I'm watching The Deuce right now on HBO. I'm really enjoying that show. Um, And it lets me experience what it was like to inhabit Times Square in the early 1970s. Or it lets me think I can experience what it was like to inhabit Times Square in the early 1970s. And those synthetic experiences are quite powerful in the way they shape our ideas about reality. 
as much as we might know cognitively that there's someone else's reconstruction of reality, that they're another person's imagination of what that reality was like, affectively, emotionally, and as far as our senses are concerned, we feel like those simulations are true. We feel like those simulations are real. Um, so media routinely get used to deceive the senses, to trick the senses. And that's not necessarily bad, um, but it does have significant ramifications. In its current form, it has its limits. I can see and hear 1970s New York, but I can't feel my feet fall down on broken concrete. I can't, um, very fortunately, smell the odors emanating from dilapidated buildings or the oppressive cigarette smoke hanging in the air of the bar that they enter on the show, and I can't taste the cocktail that the customer's sipping. So my sensory encounter with that simulated world is limited. Haptics technology holds the promise of admitting the sense of touch to these fictional worlds. And so if that te this technology succeeds, if we can touch and feel in these worlds, then suddenly the ante will be upped because the question of what we can touch and feel and whose virtual bodies we can inhabit will become hugely consequential. The stakes for haptics are high. Whoever can win the race towards having the industry's top haptics products will hold major influence over how people interact with media. And hidden within this race to become a leading haptics company is a major lesson in patent law, playing out through a true David and Goliath story. As the Goliath, a 25-year-old haptics company called Immersion Corporation, in the summer of 2018, they announced that they'd reached the milestone of having 3,000 patents granted or pending across the globe. Their patents stretch across most of the conceivable applications for haptic technology, and their current positioning makes entering the haptics industry a very daunting proposition for young entrepreneurs. Fortunately for our story, we have a brave West Coast startup called Haptex playing the role of David. Haptex is a small company with a research lab nestled in the low mountains of San Luis Obispo, California, and a modest office in downtown Seattle. Founded in 2013, their recent focus has been on an incredible set of gloves designed to allow people to use their hands in natural ways while they interact with virtual reality. Co-founder Jake Rubin began this company at the age of 22 and is clearly an exceptionally talented engineer. But as we'll soon hear, Rubin has the strategic mind of a wizened war general. My name is Jake Rubin. I'm the founder and CEO of Haptex. Jake Rubin's destiny to become an innovative engineer is no surprise, with most of his grandparents being accomplished researchers or scientists. Rubin remembers an early formative experiment between himself, his grandfather, and a three-story magnet. So he said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll show you. So he gave me a, a hammer to hold on to. He had me stand at the other end of this big room, and he turned on this big, humming, water-cooled electromagnet that generated an enormous magnetic field. And he told me to walk very slowly toward the magnet. And I got to a certain point in the room, and I started to feel a little bit of a jitter on the hammer. I said, okay, stop. He said, now very slowly take one more step forward. And as I took another step forward, the strength you know, increased so rapidly on the hammer that actually it ended up getting ripped out of my hand as I took another step forward. Um, and you know, he'd obviously been watching, waiting for this. And so he, he turned off the magnet and the hammer dropped to the ground and sort of slid against the wall. Um, and I will always, always remember that as one of my most visceral experiences with, um, with high tech. Rubin eventually found his co-founder and mentor through a program at California Polytechnic State University called Proof of Concepts. My name is Bob Crockett. I'm the chair of the biomedical engineering department at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Dr. Bob Crockett's hair is brown and silver, and he wears long sideburns and thin eyeglasses. 
He began running Proof of Concept as an extracurricular program to help young engineers test their ideas and develop them into working prototypes. So I'm, I'm used to some, some pretty out and left field ideas coming across my desk. Uh, and originally, Jake fit that category uh, pretty well. He was at, at that time a 22-year-old uh, who was, was coming to me with visions of building a machine that once you put it on, you would not be able to distinguish the real, the real world from the virtual world. And it, it sounded kind of wacky. But after we talked for a little bit, it was pretty clear that, that Jake had really, really done his homework and thought deeply about this for, for far too long. Uh, and so I was intrigued. And we, we spent about the first summer working through kind of a, a just intellectual games of, of what could be done and what, what couldn't be done. And, and he would describe an architecture and I would poke holes in it. And then I would describe an architecture and he would poke holes in it. And I, I remember that, that period as being, being extremely fun. What they came up with was a revolutionary wearable system for use during virtual reality experiences. Here's Jake explaining his invention and vision. And so what, what Bob and I found is we really started to look into the specifications required to produce a high-resolution haptic actuator array um, is you need a combination of a couple of parameters that are very difficult to achieve from most existing actuators. You need an array that is high density, so has lots of different actuators in a small space, is high displacement, so it can move up and down quite a bit to actually deform your skin, um, and is high bandwidth, so it can move quickly because our skin can detect very high-frequency vibration which give you a sense of, for example, texture. Um, and there was no existing actuator type that came anywhere close to um, meeting all those requirements, let alone in a light, thin, flexible, robust, and uh, low-cost package. Haptex's most recent glove and their microfluidic technology are making waves across the VR community. The gloves are mostly black, with parts of the fingers colored gray. On the back of the glove is housing for small machinery that serve to carefully and precisely pump air into the fabric. Also connected to the back of the gloves are long black tendons which loosely reach upwards and curl forward to the tips of each finger. Each fingertip appears to have modernist thimbles attached. The pair of gloves are connected with black tubing which runs behind your back to a sophisticated box which controls the air pressure. There, is a, there really is a certain magic to being able to reach out and touch something in a virtual world. And usually for anyone who's tried VR, you know, you, it's very immersive for your eyes and ears, but you feel like a ghost. You can't touch anything. You can't interact with anything. And our gloves are the first device that really bridges that gap. You can actually reach out and just touch something. And, you know, it's not 100% perfect yet. You know, there are still places where you'll notice it doesn't feel exactly like a real object. But, um, you know, for, for the most part, our users will say it is accurate enough that they very, very quickly forget these aren't real objects. You get, you know, you get essentially what you expect to feel, shape, weight, size, motion, texture, um, and it's more than enough to convince your brain that these are real objects you're interacting with. You know, how many times do you use your hands in the real world every day to perform any task, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times? Imagine doing that with no hands or with pieces of plastic instead of hands or with hands you could see but where you couldn't feel something or where you're just feeling some buzzes or vibrations instead of actually feeling the shape and size and weight of objects. And you know, what, what it comes down to is allowing people to naturally engage their motor skills and their minds in VR environments without having to think of it. After arriving at their elegant idea, Haptex reached a serious crossroads. Dr. Crockett knew the existing field of haptics was home to companies like Immersion Corporation, who were many years ahead in IP development. It just seemed like this, the risk was through the roof. So I actually approached it very skeptically uh, at first. 
They knew that their invention could be sold to major industries for many important applications. But at this point, rather than get started on selling their product, Rubin took it upon himself to fully commit to the challenging patent process that lay ahead. Uh, it's, it's long and confusing and time-consuming. Rubin took an entire year and studied the legal playing field, working closely with lawyers to craft an ambitious strategy. They eventually settled on a grand design and got to work. Rubin excitedly outlined the process. So in, in 2013, we took all of the work that we'd done uh, up to that point. It was late 2013. Um, and you know our goal was to really lay a foundation for this company from an IP perspective. And so the approach we took based on the advice of our lawyers was to try and basically pack all of the information about this very broad, complex system into what's called an omnibus patent filing. Um, knowing that later down the line, as this made its way through the Byzantine um, uh, patent prosecution process, we could break it into potentially smaller pieces um, and pursue protection in, in a variety of different countries. Um, and so that was, you know, that was really foremost in our thinking uh, from very early on in the process. And the result was a very, very comprehensive patent, which you know, I think is regarded at this point um, by those in the industry as, as foundational. Their foundational patent, entitled Whole Body Human Computer Interface, is 130 pages long and was granted in the summer of 2017, nearly four years after they began the process. You know, if you're if you're doing it right and if there's enough there in your patent, it usually is a multi-year process involving many different prosecutions and um, a lot of a lot of complexity. Um, and I think you know, in most cases, I'm sorry to say, when you know inventors file patents, they actually end up being worse than useless. Um, the you know one thing that I think inventors often don't appreciate is a patent is very different than an en engineering specification or engineering design, where you know really the the more detail um, you put into an engineering spec, usually the better. Um, whereas in a patent, there's two very different parts of a patent. There's a specification where you know it's not exactly like an engineering spec, but it's, it's a lot more like it. And then critically, there are claims. And the claims are what legally define what is protected in that patent. Um, and most, most sets of claims that I see, uh, particularly those from um, new inventors and startups, um, tend to be way, way too specific. So they'll go out, they'll, they'll describe their invention in excruciating detail, which they think is good. They'll get a patent and they'll say, oh my God, I'm protected. And the reality is when you read these patents, every single piece of information you're including in those claims is a limitation. It makes the scope of your patent smaller and smaller and smaller. As an example, let's say you want a, a patent chair. Um, if you were in your claims, describe it as, you know, a, um, you know, a sitting, uh, a, um, mechanical device that supports the weight of a person, right? It's very, very broad. That can encompass a, a, a stool. It could encompass a beanbag. You know, it could encompass pretty much anything. Of course, you'd never get that claim because there's so much prior art out there. There's so many chairs that people have designed before. So you can't be that broad. But at the same time, if you are as specific as saying, you know, it must have four legs with a cross brace and three screws and so on and so forth, which usually is, is the way that these patents read, then someone can make one very minor modification and suddenly your patent is useless. And it's actually worse than useless because now you've put out all of that information to the public domain where you're describing your invention in excruciating detail and sharing all of your, your what could have been your trade secrets. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very fraught process. You're walking this line between um, producing claims that are so broad that you'll, you'll never get them um, and producing claims that are so narrow that they'll easily be granted by the patent office, but they're useless. 
By tackling these legal concepts head-on, Rubin and Crockett are thinking far beyond their role as engineers. Dr. Crockett helps us understand the mental adjustment that is required at this stage of their journey. There are times when you need to think like an engineer, and there are times where you need to think much more strategically. And in writing the patent, what Jake did was be able to step out of, of this, this narrow mindset of, of solving the engineering problems at hand uh, and jump to a much higher level of, of not only what's the best way to do it, but what are all the other ways to do it and what could somebody else possibly do, and then jump back and forth uh, between the world of engineering and the world of, of strategy. That technologists particularly have, have a challenge in doing that. When you come to a solution, uh, you write it down and, and call it a patent, what you're, what you're missing out on is, uh, is not only protection, because somebody can always find a, a way to engineer around it, but you're also missing opportunity. The value of the patent is not just in what it, what it covers that we do, but in what it covers that we don't do and what it sets the stage for for other people who might come down the road 10 years from now. Uh, and so that, that's the difference between a standard patent where you're protecting your idea uh, and a really foundational patent, which is what we believe we have, which is, is setting the stage for an entire industry for years to come. Crockett and Rubin work quickly and efficiently together, even here, describing the balance between two major assets, IP and prototypes. We would not at all be able to, to get to where we are if we relied only on the, on the patents. The ideas are, are necessary, but they're not sufficient at all. It, it wasn't until we built the prototypes and started showing it around that people really believed uh, in that, that what we were saying uh, was possible. But the flip side of that is we never would have gotten the funding and support to build those prototypes without the patents. That's right. The patents showed there really was something of business value, something protectable um, in, you know, in our company. And as Bob said, they're certainly not worth much on their own, um, but they laid the foundation for the development of this technology and the access to resources that we needed to do that. Thanks to great engineering and aggressive strategic maneuvering, companies like Haptex and Tanvis are well on their way to bringing wonderful and profound new experiences into existence. But just like road signs, alongside exciting highway joyrides or safety demonstrations on transcontinental flights, Dr. David Parisi reminds us to reflect before beginning a new journey. The touchscreen has really, really rapidly become the dominant way that we interact with computers in a very, very short span of time. We transitioned from a non-touchscreen world into a touchscreen world really quickly uh, without much say in how that process unfolded. Um, that technological change, once it became domesticated, it ceased to be noticeable, it became invisible. It just was part of our everyday experience with media technology, so we stopped reflecting on it. And my concern with haptics is that we'll have a similar, uh, a similar process happen that will incorporate these technologies into our daily lives so thoroughly and so quickly that we don't notice the transition. But we don't necessarily have to be powerless in this process. As Dr. Parisi says in the final sentence of his book, acknowledging and specifying the haptic subject's active role in shaping the trajectory of media history presents a positive response to our current moment, providing a framework for confronting the future of mediated tactility. Haptic interfaces, for me, have been wonderful objects to think through. They allow me to ask some really fundamental questions, uh, metaphysical questions, philosophical questions, practical questions. Uh, they've prompted me to, to develop an increased appreciation of how complicated, how vital the sense of touch is to our existence. 
Thanks to our guests, Dr. David Parisi, Dr. Ed Colgate, Jake Rubin, Dr. Bob Crockett, and to all the innovators and inventors listening out there. I'm Lauren Hutchinson, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by Atwill Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.